So now, ladies and gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Rock and roll is traditionally a young person's game, but some artists manage to achieve success later in life. Greg and I are going to share some of our favorite musical late bloomers. Plus, we'll review the new album from rock all-star group Filthy Friends. And the front woman of The Little Dragon shares the song that got her hooked on Sonics. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and coming up, our favorite late bloomers. Uh, It is inspiring in many ways to see artists who didn't begin to have success until their 30s, 40s, or later. We're going to dig into that topic in a little bit, but first we've got some new music to talk about. That is the song Any Kind of Crowd from the debut album by Filthy Friends called Invitation. Filthy Friends formed in 2012. It's an all-star group of sorts of of indie rock, alternative rock of the last 20, 30 years. Uh, You have uh, Peter Buck of R.E.M. as the guitar player in this band and Corin Tucker of Slater Kinney as the lead vocalist. Uh, In addition, you've got some... uh, Pretty big names in the indie rock scene. Kurt Bloke of uh, Fastbacks, Scott McCoy of the Minus Five, Bill Rieflin, who's drummed with just about everybody, including King Crimson. They're all on this album together. Now, they started out as kind of a lark. They were uh, basically a cover band at the start, and then they started writing some original music. Buck and uh, Tucker, the primary songwriters, uh, they put out a couple of singles. Now we've got a full-length album. The album is called Invitation, and here's a cut from it, Come Back Shelly by Filthy Friends on Sound Opinions. Somewhere She 
That is Comeback Shelly by Filthy Friends. The album's called Invitation. And you hear a lot of uh, T-Rex bang-a-gong mm. in there, Greg. Obviously, Peter Buck is a super knowledgeable student of rock history. So, for that matter, is Corin Tucker. And there are nods here and there throughout the album, borrowed riffs, uh, lyrical nods uh, to the music that they grew up loving. We are, by nature, as rock critics, highly skeptical of supergroups, all right? We've done shows on that in the past. They are often forced amalgamations of, uh, of talents. Even if they have something in common, they don't necessarily gel as a band. I think Filthy Friends does indeed gel as a band, as well as Wild Flag, that incredible supergroup uh, that you and I were big fans of with Carrie Bronstein, Corin Tucker's bandmate in Slater, Kinney, and Mary Timoney of Helium. Uh, it only lasted one album. Who knows how long Filthy Friends are going to last. But I think here they do come together as a real band saying things that are a lot of fun. There's a real kick on this album. I think the real joy here, uh, Greg, is that this is a guitar record. Oh, sure. I can hear a lot of Buck uh, when R.E.M. was R.E.M. He is having just a tremendous amount of fun playing those wonderful Peter Buck signature lines and also doing some fantastic psychedelic kind of lead work, if that's him. It's hard to tell who's doing what. But it's a great guitar pop album with strong songs. It's not just a traveling Wilburys, we'll trade on our name and 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 all come together and sell you something. Uh, it, it, it feels and sounds like a band. So it's an enthusiastic buy it from me. Even, I mean, look, this is not going to change your life. If, if these were no names, would we care? I don't know, but I love this record. Uh, it's a fun ride and a buy it. I, you know, I wish I could be as enthused about this record as you are, Jim. I'm not. Uh, I, I, and I'm a big fan of everybody on this record. They've all made wonderful music that in many ways has changed my life over the last 20, 30 years in many cases. But in, on this record, this is not a life changer by any means. Um, I do feel like this is a band still finding its footing. Uh, they're still a little tentative around each other. I've never heard Corin Tucker sound so restrained. Maybe she's going for a more nuanced vocal performance. She didn't want to do the, the more shouty thing that she does, for example, in Slater Kinney. a very song-oriented record, two, three-minute songs, verse, chorus, bridge, a little bit of a guitar solo maybe, nothing, no real surprises musically. Like I've heard versions of all these songs, you accurately said that they're referencing a lot of their heroes, but it just made me want to go back and listen to their heroes, including themselves. They're imitating themselves. I hear that track Windmill, yeah. it, it sounds like a leftover Slater-Kinney track in yeah. some ways. There's R.E.M. jangle all over this record, as you mentioned. Yeah, but it's been 20 years since we heard R.E.M. jangle. So you don't think this is as good a record as Wild Flag? Because I think that's the comparison. The Wild Flag record was one of my favorite records that year. In fact, it was my favorite record that year. But this is uh, nowhere near that standard. I think it's a nice record. It's a pleasant record. But I think a year from now... I don't th- see myself listening to this record. I, it's a try-it record for me simply because of the pedigree of these musicians. You want to be a completist, own this record, but in terms of uh, new excitement, I don't hear it. 
but we want to hear what you think. Give us a call and leave a message on our hotline at 888-859-1800. Or you can connect with us through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Greg, we recently had director Penelope Spheris on the show, and she told us about how she didn't start to see commercial success until well into her career. I was raised in a trailer park, you know. It's like I didn't have any money, and I didn't make any money until I was like 45 years old when I did Wayne's World. I get all these people saying, oh, what am I going to do, man? I'm in the movie business, and I can't make any money. And I'm like, you're 20 years old. Come back when you're 45, dude. (laughs) That got us thinking about how rare it is for musicians to break through Later in life, you know, it's the cliche, rock and roll is a young person's game. Occasionally, though, it does happen, and we want to highlight some of the best late bloomers in music. We're talking about musicians, artists who, um, you know, came of age, so to speak, artistically to commercial uh, notice to realizing what they really were all about at a later age than we normally expect. I mean, rock especially I mean, Brian, Wil- think Brian Wilson, early 20s, yeah. had already made Pet Sounds, you know? We are the, in love with that Regrets record, and they're still in high school. Yeah. The Beatles broke up when they were in their late 20s, and they'd made mm-hmm. a string of records that changed the world. And a lot of times, artists are playing catch-up. You know, don't trust anyone over 30. That used mm-hmm. to be the old adage. Uh, to a degree, we're still operating under that sort of ageist idea that people later in life can't do anything good or creative or interesting except recycle their past. But what we've got, Jim, are examples on this show, I think, of exactly the opposite of that, artists who took a while to finally find their true voice and their true audience. Uh, So that's what we're going to focus on in this show. Now, Jim, you're going to start us off with some examples. I am, Greg, and this is a very Greg example. I know this artist is one of your all-time favorites. Uh, Our producer, Iona Contreras, loves him as well, and, and so do I. Bill Withers. What a life story he had before he ever turned to music. Nine years serving in the U.S. Navy before uh, coming out of service and moving to Los Angeles to pursue a music career. He also did a lot of time on different assembly lines, Mm -hmm. right? It was only in 1971, at the age of 34, that he put out his debut album, just as I am, and that, of course, you know, launched him to stardom with uh, Ain't No Sunshine, you know, the song everybody knows. It's a beautiful song. He is a wonderful performer, this kind of acoustic soul and digging back to the blues roots. One of the reasons, Greg, I think that there is a case to be made for late bloomers, certainly everybody we're going to highlight on this show, is they have lived. Think about the life experience uh, in the Navy uh, as a working man that Bill Withers brought to him before he ever recorded a song that anybody heard. I mean, he was making music throughout his life, but for in terms of reaching an audience, there's a lot of living that was done. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you're 19, you don't know nothing except what's in front of your nose. Mm-hmm. Bill Withers, I think, fills everything he does with uh, a lifetime's worth of experience or half a life of experience. I'm going to play a track from that debut album, Just As I Am, Moanin' and Groanin', which in a lot of ways is a a classic blues. But here's a man in his mid-30s who is expressing his desires, I think, in a really interesting way. Moanin' and Groanin' by Bill Withers on Sound Opinions. Moaning, groaning, hey, because 
can't nobody love me like my baby does. The young girl turned out to be two times twice the woman that I thought she was. She keeps me moaning, groaning. Bill Withers. Who doesn't love Bill Withers? I ain't moaning and groaning. My first late bloomer. Greg, what have you got? I love that choice, Jim. And I, in some ways, I'm going to go to the anti Bill Withers. She's, uh, her name is Peaches, otherwise known as Meryl Nisker. Uh, you know, Meryl Nisker was just kind of a folky singer in yeah. uh, in Ontario uh, in the in the 1990s. She was finding her voice and really not doing much of anything in terms of success. She was in a rock band after that. Things started to pick up when she moved to Berlin. She just changed her life in many ways. And she picked up this Roland MC505 beatbox Mm -hmm. and said, I'm going to make music with this thing. And she sort of remade herself, or maybe maybe she found herself is maybe a better word for it. Or she it. became brave enough to let her true self show. She's opening for bands like uh, Marilyn Manson and Queens of the Stone Age. and Toured uh, with Elastica. Memorable show with uh, Elastica in Chicago where she was... People were booing, you know, by, by the second <laughs> song. They didn't really get it. Here's this, here's this lady wearing these hot pants, singing these really twisted songs about gender and upending notions of what it means to be the quote-unquote sexy female singer. The aggressor. Uh, this gleeful, rinky-dink kind of melody underneath mm-hmm. it. Uh, very sarcastic. People didn't know how to take her at first, but slowly but surely started finding an audience for this music that was very dark in some ways, very funny in others, incredibly smart in the way it approached issues of sex and sexuality. The Teaches of Peaches uh, in 2000 mm-hmm. really put her on the map, and, and she went on to make a series of really interesting albums. 2008, she released this record, Impeach My Bush, in which she slicks up the sound a little bit. But it's still peaches at the heart of it. That attitude comes through. And there's this perfect moment on the record where she brings in Joan Jett uh, as her uh, duet partner. It's called You Love It from Peaches on Sound Opinion.
Lovett from Peaches, an artist who found her stride well into her 30s. We love Peaches on Sound Opinions, Greg. When we come back from a break, more late bloomers, favorite artists who came to music late in the game. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and we're giving credit this week to the late bloomers, artists who didn't achieve success or come to music until much later in their careers. Jim, you're up. Greg, all of my next three picks of late bloomers are all women, and I'm proud to say that the rock and roll world seems to be more accepting of women uh, artists who are in their 30s, in their 40s, in their 50s than Hollywood. It it pains me to see young actresses, you know, who are about to hit 30 sometimes, complaining about how ageist Hollywood is. And you have notable exceptions like Dame Helen Mirren, right? Mm-hmm. But but we can count those on one hand. In, in music, uh, it has seemed to matter much less, and I love that. Sharon Jones, I think, is a perfect example. You know, she had been doing music throughout the 70s, but only on a very low-key level in New York. She was supporting herself working as a a corrections officer, as uh, the guard for an armored car, and occasionally she'd get a singing (laughs) gig. Uh, And it's only when she was 46 in 2002 that she released her debut album with a wonderful band called the Dap Kings. And of course, they kind of were a key part of that era's big soul funk, old school, gritty revival. Big bands, brash vocalists, and man, was she a wonderful, wonderful vocalist. She died recently. We paid homage to her on the show in 2016. But I'm going to go back to the beginning and and listen here. You can hear that life's experience of working as a prison guard, as an armored car guard, Uh, This lady has lived, and the amount of soul she brings to a song that is appropriately called Ain't It Hard, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just palpable. Sharon Jones on Sound Opinions.
Ain't It Hard by Sharon Jones. That's that first album, Dap Dippin' with Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, 2002. Greg, another late bloomer. Great choice. Uh, Sharon Jones, the hardest working woman in show business when she was with us, Jim. Uh, incredible performer. I am going to go to Dayton, Ohio, for the story of Robert Pollard. The Guided by Voices fans know the story well. I remember seeing this band in New York City in the early 90s and just sort of stumbling into CBGB to check out what was playing there. And here's this band that just blew me away. It was guided by voices. Uh, Apparently, they didn't get out of Dayton that much at that time. And I saw this band that really, really desperately wanted to be The Who, uh, but sounded like some kind of lo-fi punk rock band. And it was... uh, it was uh, incredible to see because the songs were so good. Mm. Turns out the guy who's running, who's leading the band, Robert Pollard, 37 years old at the time, had a wife, couple of kids, uh, was an elementary school teacher in Dayton, Ohio, and doing this band as sort of a, a side gig. They were playing weekend gigs in um, in their area. And, uh, you know, they couldn't get arrested in their hometown. I mean, it was one of those things where they would play a show and, Ten people would show up, and they were all <laughs> yeah. like uh, all like the relatives. Um, an uncategorizable band at a time when you know radio genres were breaking up bands into these like micro genres. Uh, here was a band that was influenced equally by Genesis and Devo, according yeah, to Pollard. Yeah. He loved that progressive rock thing. He also loved the pithiness and the punk attitude of, of a band like Devo, which was from, from Ohio as well. So combining these elaborate arrangements with this, uh, with this punk attitude and the rock showmanship uh, of The Who, as I'd mentioned, uh, you've got this prematurely graying schoolteacher uh, swigging beers, swinging the microphone like Roger Daltrey, <laughs> throwing karate kicks, just throwing himself into the music. It took them six albums to get noticed. Once they got noticed with that album, B-Thousand, in 1994, uh, they ended, ended up becoming one of the most uh, respected bands in indie rock for the next two decades. Here is a song from that breakthrough record in 1994, B-1000. It's called Tractor Rape Chain from Guided by Voices on Sound Opinions. Why is it every time I think about you Tractor Rape Chain from Guided by Voices, led by 
erstwhile schoolteacher Robert Pollard. You know, Greg, I, I appreciate your enthusiasm for GBB, <laughs> but to me, he never learned to edit himself. That's there, true. There'd be 25 or 30 songs on a, on a Guided by Voices album, 10 of which were great, but I didn't have the patience to sit through the others. Yeah, hundreds and hundreds of songs by that man, and he's, he's writing about six today, I can guarantee you that. Well, I think one of the things that a late bloomer learns is how to separate the wheat from the chaff. Um, Cheryl Crow, I think I'm going to shock you by going to Cheryl Crow. I'm shocking even myself, but I love... <laughs> The story of the long and winding road she took to stardom. When she finally arrived there, it was in a big way. But we're talking about a woman who taught as a Missouri elementary school teacher who had a couple of windfalls, but but it was by recording commercial jingles for national ad chains. And then, because she loved to sing, she took a gig as a backing vocalist for Michael Jackson in the mm. 80s. Google it and look at the picture of her with two-and-a-half-foot-tall hair standing behind Michael Jackson and doing backing vocals. She links up in her early 30s with a group in Los Angeles, an unofficial social group called the Tuesday Night Music Club. Songwriters, singers, all of whom are pretty frustrated. And, of course, she becomes the one that breaks out. That later leads to some controversy, uh, lawsuits about whose credits were due on which songs. Okay, I'm going to steer away from that. I think at 31, when she has that big breakthrough uh, with the album she named after that group, Tuesday Night Music Club, 1993, one single after another. I'm, I'm going to play All I Want to Do. It's kind of an obvious choice, okay? But I think we forget. You know, we're, we're thinking of her as a brand new pop star in 1993. All I want to do is have some fun. Mm. I know I'm not the only one, but this is a woman in her early 30s. She's had her ups. She's had her downs. Uh, she's had relationships, yeah? and she just wants, you know, it, it's the end of a long, hard week. She wants to go out and have a drink, mm. you know, and that's not like the party-hardy 19-year-old. <laughs> that's the 31-year-old woman. Right. I think, think about it in those terms and you'll see and I, I gotta admit yeah those songs are, are kind of overproduced and kind of cheesy but when they come on the radio they still are mm-hmm. I, I, I won't say guilty pleasure we don't believe in guilt here they make me smile as long as I don't have to listen to the whole album Cheryl Crow on Sound Opinions Hit it This ain't no disco It ain't no country club either This is L.A. Have a little fun before I die There's a man next to me Out of nowhere It's apropos of nothing He says his name is William I'm sure he's Bill Billy or Mac or Buddy And he's played ugly to me And I wonder if he's ever had a day of fun In his whole life And we are drinking beer at noon on Tuesday The bar that faces a giant car 
All I Want to Do by Sheryl Crow. Greg, how long has it been since you heard that one? Not since I was listening to alt-rock radio in, uh, like, 1995 or whatever. Well, you catch it sometimes at the Target, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? I hear you, yeah, exactly. (laughs) You mentioned, Jim, that artists have experienced a little life, and that's a good thing, and are able to bring it to their music. I... I dislike artists who who are trying to live in the past. You know, they're they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and writing like they're a teenager, yeah. uh, or about being a teenager. But uh, I think artists who uh, can tell us some things about how their experiences have guided them to the place they are in life uh, can be really valuable. And I think Betty Lovett is a great example, a soul singer out of Detroit, whose career uh, began somewhat promisingly. At the age of 16, she had a minor hit at age 16 in the early 60s. Oh, no, and that's then cheating. Pretty much nothing after that. Oh, that's all right, the thing. all right, all right. Uh, long dry spell. In fact, between the ages of 16 and 61, pretty much not much happened in Betty Lovett's career except disappointment. I interviewed her, uh, and she would uh, say things like, I really thought of myself as a Doris Day-type singer when I was mm. younger. And you listen to Betty Lovett's voice, and you go, I don't know how you got Doris Day out of that voice, because it's a, it's got its own character. It's kind of a raspy, lived-in, uh, powerful quality, but the polar opposite of Doris Day. But I think she finally realized what that voice was about and what she could do with it. But it took her a few decades to get there. Um, in 2005, she had a breakthrough record with I've Got My Own Hell to Raise, as, as I mentioned, at age 61, and then followed it up uh, with a great record called The Scene of the Crime. And I think it's really emblematic of her career and how she's lived it. The album title references uh, a recording that she did in 1972 with Atlantic Records in in uh, Muscle Shoals, Alabama, she went to that famed studio down there to work with the Muscle Shoals rhythm section. She cut a record in three days. That was the same place that Aretha Franklin and Wilson Pickett and the Staple Singers had been coming to record. And Atlantic wanted to, you know, sort of create an artist in that mold. Uh, and, and they were very thrilled to have her record for them. Three-day recording, sent her a plane ticket for a promotional tour. They get the record, they listen to it, they go, uh-uh, we're not going to put this thing out. Mm. Uh, Betty, by the way, could you return that plane ticket, please? No. <laughs> uh, total diss. Never put the record out. Made her return her plane ticket. She went to went back to obscurity. Now back in, now in 2007, the scene of the crime, she returns to Memphis to make a record with Patterson Hood of Drive-By Truckers. The um, irony here is that Patterson Hood is the uh, son of the bass player on of that original Betty Lovett session, uh, David Hood. Now, Betty had really made her name by recording covers, but she wrote an original song for this record. Before the money came, the battle of Betty Lovett. And it talks about her career and it talks about that experience of going back to the recording studio, uh, which handed her lo- her lowest moment in her career. And now she was coming back to make one of the most triumphant moments. It's Betty Lovett with Before the Money Came, the battle of Betty Lovett on Sound Opinions. Girls hanging on to my mama's every word. Gonna sing them out loud and conquer the world. All them faces on the pictures up there makes me remember when my table was bare. Living at my mama's house, taking food from my family's mouth. If all the money came. When he was over sleeping on my floor before he crossed over all my friends on the Grammy show. I was stuck in Detroit trying to open doors. 
Betty Levette with Before the Money Came, the Battle of Betty Levette. Uh, we've got a number of our favorite late bloomers, but we want to hear from you as well. Who are your favorite late blooming musicians? Give us a call and leave us a message on our hotline at 888-859-1800. Or you can connect with us through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. When we come back, we'll share our final picks, and Jim's going to take us on a trip to the desert island. I am indeed, Greg. Uh, I've got uh, what I think is a perfect pop song. If I had to choose my, my top dozen perfect pop songs of all time, this would be on it. Can't wait to hear that, Jim. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and we're wrapping up our discussion of our favorite late-blooming artists. Jim, what's your final pick? Greg, I think looking back, uh, we think of the initial punk uprising on the Lower East Side of New York in 1976, or for that matter, in London at the same time, as uh, being all young kids, Mm -hmm. right? But they obviously weren't. The guys in Wire had all been, you know, fairly established in art school. Uh, The Ramones were not spring chickens. Certainly Patti Smith wasn't, nor was Debbie Harry the leader of Blondie. Uh, Debbie did a lot of living before she came to the Lower East Side and began singing with Blondie in about 76. First album was 76. They didn't break through until the third album, uh, Parallel Lines, in 1978. She was 33 by the time Heart of Glass was a single. Debbie had worked uh, in New York City as a secretary for the BBC office there. She uh, waitressed at Max's Kansas City. She uh, was a go-go dancer in Union City, New Jersey. And she was a Playboy bunny, even. Uh, I'm going to go to the very beginning of Blondie's career, the very first single, Rip Her to Shreds. Now, in recent years, uh, Debbie has said Rip Her to Shreds was about uh, the gossip column's ability to tear people apart. I don't buy that that's Mm. what it was. Lester Bangs wrote a book about Blondie, the only book published in his lifetime, and she was clearly playing with the uh, BDSM imagery. She was posing very sexy in posters that said rip her to shreds, like inviting Mm. people to attack her. Uh, But, you know, we had Debbie on, on the show once, and She's a formidable woman, and I wouldn't disagree with her. I'm too afraid to challenge <laughs> Debbie Harry. There's an, an anger, an energy, um, a self-empowerment. You did not mess ever with Debbie Harry, even when she was playing the sexy ingenue. I mean, obviously, Blondie is a play on Marilyn Monroe and, mm-hmm. and kind of, uh, you know, the comic strip Blondie character, right? So she had it both ways in true post-feminist fashion. Anyway, Ripper to Shreds, kids— 
if you don't know this single, you may go back to Bridesmaids because uh, it is so beloved in that 2011 movie. It opens and closes. The, the studio version opens the film and the live version closes it. Blondie, Ripper to Shreds on Sound Opinions. Debbie Harry leading Blondie in Rip Her to Shreds. Greg, you've got one more late bloomer. I do. Uh, a true late bloomer indeed, Charles Bradley, who didn't make his debut album until 2011 when he was in his 60s. Uh, Charles Bradley uh, has had a rough life, and uh, you do hear a lot of it being detailed in that record. It was called No Time for Dreaming. Uh, he was inspired when, as a child, he saw James Brown perform in the early 60s. James Brown at the height of his fame, you know, the whole Cape Act at the end, uh, the dancing, the band, uh, it just mesmerized the young Charles Bradley. He said, that's what I want to do. But it took him decades to realize that dream. Uh, He ended up uh, working as a short order cook in everywhere from Maine to Alaska while moonlighting on weekends in a James Brown cover band. Nobody noticed, nobody cared. Uh, He was just basically getting by for decades. Um, Then finally happened to meet a friend of a friend uh, who knew a guy who ran a recording studio. He ended up uh, recording a record called No Time for Dreaming uh, and, and writing original music for it. Um, and it was inspired by, in many ways by the hardships that he experienced in his life, in particular the fact that he um, witnessed the death of his older brother uh, 14 years before that recording was made, uh, and, and it threw him into a deep depression. Uh, his, his older brother was a mentor, uh, a father figure in his life, and, and it really took a toll on him. Uh, the fact that he was able to finally pour it out in a song called Heartaches and Pain was a cathartic moment for him, and you can hear it on his uh, performance in this song. It's Heartaches and Pain from Charles Bradley on Sound Opinion.
Heartaches and Pain by Charles Bradley on Sound Opinions. Good way to end our late bloomers conversation, Greg. Uh, but now we want to hear it from you. Do you have a favorite artist who came to music late or didn't blow up until well into his or her career? Call and leave a message with your pick and why on our hotline at 888-859-1800 or find us on Facebook or Twitter. Ritual Union by the Swedish band Little Dragon. Now, Little Dragon's been uh, making catchy electronic soul music since about 2006, but their connection to soul music started a lot earlier. Lead vocalist Yukimi Nagano and drummer Eric Bowden told us about that song that helped Yukimi to embrace her own unique voice in the latest edition of Hooked on Sonics. I'm Yukimi from Little Dragon. I'm Eric from Little Dragon. And the song that got me hooked on Sonics is A Change Is Gonna Come by the Neville Brothers. I was born by the river In a little tent Oh, just like the river I've been running Ever since we used to live in a collective together, um, sort of before our first album came out and everything, and we cranked it super loud. I'm born in Sweden and, you know, <laughs> Japanese uh, and a white mom from America, you know, but born in Sweden, so sometimes uh, when it when it's about something that is that strong, you know, you feel it, even if you don't understand what it's about, you know, so, I mean, I learned about that later. I, I remember both me and Håkan just being like, <laughs> you know, we were both crying like, oh my goodness, what a vocalist, what a song, you know, what a, um, it almost felt like live, but it was on a record. I believe actually it was uh, Eric's record, um, or actually it might have been a CD at the time, um, and I think it's the Yellow Moon album. Yeah. I think so. Never Brothers. And you, I guess you listened to that album with um, your family, right? With your parents or whatever? Yeah, it was the soundtrack. Every time we went on a car trip out in Europe, we would have cassettes. My dad is a, a music collector nerd. And Never Brothers, of course, is the meters also. So it has a, a funk to it. So it, it was very good. I had fun listening to that yes. in the car. And then that record sort of traveled over to Yukimi. Well, yeah, we were all living together at the time. So, you know, like I said, we were all trying to, like, impress each other with, with, uh, with something that the others haven't heard. That I thought I could live. 
And me and Holkand, we weren't familiar with the Neville brothers, but um, touching, you know, and the singing is completely original. I couldn't think of anybody who sounded like him, and even though, you know, it wasn't his song, it was just like his expression 100%. So yeah, it's just one of those moments that, that you don't forget where you heard a song that really kind of like uh, blew your mind. Almost maybe you feel a little bit like anxious you know like a little bit of anxiety because I was like sh sh you know his voice is so um touching you know it makes you feel really small and worth worthless <laughs> as a vocalist <laughs> you're like oh my gosh I have a long way to go somewhere along the line I guess I kind of realized that you know um I can do it my way and sing about stuff that is uh, part of my life and, and uh, you know, my world. That's Little Dragon vocalist Yukimi Nagano and drummer Eric Bowden talking about the song that got her hooked on Sonics. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island, pop a quarter in the desert island jukebox, and play a song we cannot live without. Jim, it's getting a little chilly outside, but you're still <laughs> swimming out to the island. What song are you going to play? Greg, I am going to go to the Jacobites, an English rock band that formed in Birmingham 1982 in the ashes, essentially, of a band that uh, was in the post-punk movement called the Swell Maps. 99.9% um, .9 of everybody just hearing those words has no idea uh, who who these bands were, either the Jacobites or the Swell Maps. Um, there's a sort of cult following, I think, for the Swell Maps. But the band that followed the Jacobites remained pretty much forgotten. Nicky Sudden had been a really cool songwriter in the Swell Maps. He teamed up with a guy named Dave Coosworth in the Subterranean Hawks, had been his earlier band, and Nicky's brother, Epic Soundtracks. Um, as a threesome, at the very start of their career in 1984, they did a couple of singles and a couple of EPs that all had three people uh, making these songs Fantastic. And then, one by one, Epic Soundtracks left and went to Crime in the City Solution. Dave Coosworth went to a solo career. Jacobites continued for some time, but they were never as good. They even toured with Paul Westerberg, who was a big fan uh, in the replacements in the U.S. Um, I don't think... I would recommend you spend a lot of time on any of those albums, mm. but they had one perfect song. It's weird sometimes how, how a band can, can, can do one thing absolutely right. And I think, as I said earlier, if I had to choose like 12 of the greatest songs ever, um, uh, according to Jim, this song would be up there. It, it is called Shame for the Angels. 
And it's got about six hooks in it. It's it's pretty short. It's just three verses uh, that lead to three choruses, and I have no idea what it's about. Um, it's wonderfully enigmatic in the way that, like, A Day in the Life by the Beatles is. Standing in my shoes, another boy reads the news. I know it has something to do with unrequited love. It's a shame for the angels when your pretty face is your only defense, because apparently this this woman that Nikki Sudden is fixating on uh, is loving somebody else who's on the other side of that garden wall. Uh, you know, standing in my shoes and on the other side of the wall comes up and again and again. I have no idea what it's about, but I guarantee you uh, this is going to give everybody who's never heard it before an earworm right now, and not in a bad way, because <laughs> I, I got some hate tweets, Greg, for playing lolly, 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 get your adverbs here a couple of weeks ago. No, this is this is to make up for that. Here is a perfect pop song, according to Jim. The Jacobites, Shame for the Angels from 1984. For the Angels, what a great song. Greg, what is on the show next week? Jim, we're going to air some very rare performances, never before heard live performances on Sound Opinions from artists like Courtney Barnett, Bob Mould, and plenty more. Sounds good, Greg. As always, Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banisak, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and Ayana Contreras. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Don't dial my number Cause you're all alone and feeling blue Cause you only hear from me Hello, Sound Opinions. My name is Scott. I live in Minneapolis. I'm commenting about the artist versus the art. 
for no good reason, I've been recently immersing myself in Richard Wagner, a lot of his operas, um, and reading his biography. And as far as I can tell, he is a fairly repulsive human being with very few good attributes, except he was a brilliant musician. I mean, he lived beyond his means constantly. He was anti-Semitic. He's unfaithful to his wife. He exploited others at will. But I can't help but love a lot of his music. I mean, his morals may have been questionable, but I think the work transcends the man. And I think for that reason, my opinion is that the artist is not as important as the art he leaves behind. Thank you. Jersey. I think that putting artists into some kind of moral witness test is an incredibly slippery slope. I don't think anybody is in a position to judge whether, you know, one person's alcoholism makes them uh, somebody who shouldn't be played on the radio, or whether another person's sexual predilections make their music invalid. I'm not saying that I condone R. Kelly or many of the artists who get a lot of attention, but at the same time, you can't be in the business of applying moral tests to artists because there'll be no end to it. Thank you. My name is Rachel. I live in Chicago. I was calling about your recent episode um, separating artists from their work. I wanted to thank you guys for that episode, and I wanted to see if maybe there's something you guys can do to bring attention to the issue with Gary Glitter and Rock and Roll Part 1 and 2. I'm a parent. You guys are parents. I hear this song all the time at children's sporting events, in children's dance competitions. The man's a convicted pedophile in multiple countries, and it really, really bothers me to hear his music played at children's events. (laughs) Any ideas you guys might have to putting an end to Gary Glitter at sporting events would be so welcome. Seriously, this one really bothers me. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. My name is Belinda. I was shopping while listening to the episode about returning to school, and I thought about how grateful I am to be old enough never to have to go to school again. Then I heard the fascinating story in the Steely Dan segment about Bard College. I was listening to my old school when I entered my apartment and turned on the television, and the first sound out of the TV was Bard College took off my headset and heard the worst news about Walter Becker. I'm spending my weekend now with Steely Dan because they are wonderful and 70s lifeblood. Thank you so much for doing this show. I really, really appreciate it. Take care. messages. 
to share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.